0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Uh, to those of you who are celebrating, happy Hanukkah. Thank you for uh, joining us after sunset. And um, this is our Fireside Chat series. We've been doing this since last April. It is sustained entirely by the benevolence of our uh, research fellows, uh, former, current, and you know, actually just all of our independent researchers as well that have helped us sort of keep this going on a weekly basis. And it's been a real pleasure for me just to sort of see all of the active work that folks are doing despite all of the, um, the challenges that we're collectively facing. Um, the Library Company, as uh, you probably know, was founded by Benjamin Franklin back in 1731. But today we are an independent research library with uh, fabulous collection areas in African-American history, women's history, visual and print culture, uh, business and commercial history, um, and early Americana, of course. Um, and and so we have this research fellowship program that we've been doing now. I think we're coming on 34 years. Um, some 1,200 alumni have passed through and uh, we're grateful for them uh, producing all the scholarship that we read, but also helping us continue to make an argument for uh, the wealth of our collections. So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight. Emily Pally is Associate Professor of History at Dickinson College where she teaches agricultural history, food studies, environmental history, and the history of science. Her research focuses on cultivated landscapes as sources of knowledge and has been supported by grants from the NSF, the NEH, ACLS, the Smithsonian, and of course, the Library Company of Philadelphia. The subject of tonight's Fireside Chat is her book, her brand new book, The Nature of the Future, Agriculture, Capitalism, and Science in the Antebellum North, which is fresh from the presses of the University of Chicago Press. Congratulations. Dr. Polly has published on analytic tables, cattle portraiture, counterfeit apples, aphrodisiacs for sheep, and she's currently juggling projects on climate change pedagogy, carbon sequestration, and the histories of ideas of nurture. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I really want to start by thanking and the Library Company for giving me a chance to talk about my new book, which I'm going to put up on the screen here as best I can.
0: And I should add that I'll be dropping in a link where you can order it, as well as a discount code, which will knock not 10, not 20, but 30% off of the ticket price.
1: Ah, that is very exciting. Oh, and I have now discovered also that, as I had feared, my notes have disappeared again. Sorry, Will.
0: It's okay. For all
1: bringing this out. So, thanks so much. Um, I want to thank Will and the library company for giving me a chance to talk about my new book, The Nature of the Future uh, Agriculture, Science, and Capitalism in the Antebellum North. And this is particularly meaningful to me because this project actually started at the library company. The one month uh, Peace Fellowship at the library company was the first research grant I ever got. And working through the library company collections was really the first sense I had of how huge and rich the print culture of agricultural improvement was. It was also at the library company that I started to think about accounting, uh, which turned out really to matter to this project and is going to show up in this project a lot. I had a lot of help from Kathy Matson, from Wendy Wallison, who was at the library company at the time, and from Connie King and Jim Green. I just want to extend my thanks to them. And it was also at a peace conference at the library company that I started to understand that what I was doing was cultural history of capitalism as well as the history of science. There were some really great talks by Scott Sandage and Jess Lepler that helped me shift the project from a project about rationality to a project about storytelling. And that was really a turning point for me. So it's uh, great to be back for a given value of back. To understand the book, I thought I'd start by talking generally about the phenomenon that I'm studying and that's agricultural improvement, specifically in New York between about 1820 and 1861. I'm gonna talk about some of the general arcs of the book and then talk about why 19th century agriculture was futuristic and why I have a giant chicken towering over a tiny man on the cover of this book instead of a nice pastoral scene uh, and then point to some of the broader uh, kind of points and arguments I'm making. So um, I'm an environmental historian My training is in the history of science, and I'm interested in how people interact with living landscapes and how they produce knowledge about them. In general, historians of 19th century science have tended to study the wild living landscape, the world of what we call natural history, kind of like the naming and quote, unquote, discovery of new species, the rise of evolutionary theory and Darwinism, the expansion of empire, these big imperial catalogs of species. And that's where I started as a historian of science. But in the 19th century, uh, U.S., wild spaces were not most people's closest connections with animals and plants. In the East and a lot of the Midwest, people knew sea anemones or lions or sea turtles, mostly through pictures or stories in the newspaper, sometimes as food in the marketplace. They had much closer connections to another set of animals and plants. In the 19th century, most people in the U.S., as in a lot of the world, managed small ecosystems for a living. That is, they farmed. I have an image of a peaceful rural scene here, and so I want to complicate that a little. When I say that from people managed ecosystems, right, they kept dozens of animal and plant species with very different life cycles alive, they created hospitable environments for them, they fed them quite often to each other, uh, they organized their reproduction, they killed them, and they sold them. So I have this peaceful rural scene, our modern sensibilities maybe encourage us to think of farms as places of mental and physical rest. This is actually a scene that's built by a lot of human action. I'm interested in the kinds of knowledge that emerge from these very intimate encounters that people are having with animals and plants and soils. These are encounters which are in the antebellum US increasingly shaped by the expansion of new markets. And I'm interested in that too. So the species that they're growing are being sold to distant buyers, the seeds and livestock used to create uh, even the grass of this landscape are increasingly coming to them through catalogs. To get at this connection between knowledge and capitalism, I focus on a globally important set of ideas and practices that was called agricultural improvement. It was really prominent at the time, it's definitely not now, so usually I have to spend a little time talking about what it was. So what was agricultural improvement? i all get to see my finding my notes each time I change a slide face. There we go. What was agricultural improvement? It was a set of practices and a network of texts and experts that got started by wealthy landholders, basically aristocrats and members of the landed gentry in 18th century Britain. So these landholders were looking for ways to make their estates more profitable, and they engaged in this huge, often pretty socially destructive process of internal development and enclosure. In order to do this, they were developing and supporting new kinds of science. In this 18th century stage, improvement was often associated with what British historians call the agricultural revolution. This huge increase in productivity within Britain that is usually seen as a necessary precursor to the industrial revolution. So in the same way that we might talk about an industrial revolution figure like James Watt, British textbooks for a long time talked about uh, one of the people in this picture, Coke of Norfolk and his course of crop rotation. So he's in the picture on the left, On the right, we have his house and you can see that he's pretty well off as farmers go. Improvement got picked up by British colonial officials and became a global phenomenon in the British empire. This is how British animals and plants are getting transported around the world and also how the British are moving tropical and subtropical plantation crops like sugar and tea around the world. In the American colonial period, it also gets picked up by Americans specifically the Americans who think of themselves as members of the gentry. Nationally, this includes people like Washington and Jefferson, very famously. In New York, which I study for reasons that I'll talk about, this is a class of huge manorial landlords who own essentially whole counties around the Hudson, particularly after the revolution, around the upper Hudson. Between the 1760s and up through the 1820s, American agricultural improvement is sort of an elite development project for landlords and large planters who see themselves as the American counterparts of the British aristocracy and landed gentry and who hope that they're going to be able to establish these really profitable large estates worked obviously by enslaved people in the south, but by tenants in the north. New York landlords are also interested in the imperial side of improvement because landlords are often speculators in Western New York land and they're spending a lot of time and political capital extinguishing Haudenosaunee land rights and trying to convert Haudenosaunee land into thriving white settlements. This phase of improvement lasts through the 1820s but in the 1830s and 1840s, the character of improvement really changes and it changes in two ways. First, in New York, the landlords who have been the center of improvement, like Steven von Rensselaer III here, uh, really lose a lot of their power, uh, first in the panics and financial crises of the 1830s, and then when their tenants rebel in the anti-rent wars. So they're no longer the core of the story. Second, as that's happening, improvement gets a lot bigger. So under landlords' control, the early New York statewide de- uh, improvement has dozens of members, 71 members, I think, totally. Uh, the societies of the 1840s have together something like 15,000 members, just in New York. They get a boost from state, legisl- state legislatures, which start to reliably fund state and county agricultural societies, and so there are suddenly a lot more of them. But the 1860s nationwide, there are more than 900 agricultural societies. These societies are much, much bigger, they're much more diverse, They have a bigger range of incomes and they have people with different sets of goals. So there are middling farmers, there are wealthy bankers and investors. There are even a few small uh, small number of tenants and agrarian radicals. I'm quite interested in how the members of this extremely diverse group all somehow get referred to as farmers and what the cultural and political implications of that broad term uh, kind of are. So we might wanna talk about that in the discussion. These different constituencies come together annually at state and county fairs like these. And these become huge public spectacles far beyond uh, just the membership of the society. One of the things I like about both of these pictures, uh, the upper one's from 1850, the lower one is from 1843, is that they're both really images of the crowd, because the crowd is part of the spectacle. Hundreds of thousands of people come to the fairs. This explosion in crowds is matched by an explosion in print culture. Improvers who sometimes get called book farmers are defined by their relationship to print. Uh, so they, what are they reading? They're reading mostly agricultural journals. From the 1830s onwards, there are dozens of these. Uh, they have circulations in the tens of thousands and readerships that are probably much bigger. And these journals ultimately have quite a lot of political clout, uh, sorry, political clout. More than one journal editor becomes governor of his state. Uh, I just wanna give a quick shout out here to Ariel Ron who has spoken in this series earlier about his book, Grassroots Leviathan, which is now out uh, as of November 20th. And he really shows the huge national and uh, policy reach and political scope here. So some of these improvers become embedded in national politics, particularly in the platform of what will become the Republican Party. They're going to build huge new wings of the state, um, the USDA and the land grant colleges that will essentially create our modern industrial agriculture. So uh, definitely check that book out. So, improvers are receiving state aid and they're reshaping state power. Increasingly, they're also connected to another system that I'm interested in, and that's a system of goods. Across the North, and really picking up in the 1840s, there starts to emerge a commercial network of warehouses and manufacturers and nurserymen and seedsmen who sell goods that transform landscapes. So, these are things like new machines, new fertilizers new animals and plants, these warehouses and other commercial spaces often cast themselves not just as shops, but as museums and places of learning and experiment. And when we notice that almost all provincial towns of any size in New York have at least one agricultural warehouse by the 1850s, we can see that there are more museums than we thought. This commercial network really shapes also the print culture of improvement. Agricultural warehouses sell and recommend agricultural books and journals. And they're also actually the places often that agricultural journals come from. Uh, To make this clear, I like to use this image. So uh, this is from the back of the catalogue of the Albany Agricultural Works. And here in the middle, we can see a little bit blurry, sorry, Uh, The Shingle of the Cultivator, which is probably the best known American agricultural journal and which was edited by Luther Tucker, who at this point also ran the agricultural work. So he's making the machinery and he's selling the machinery. Most of the major journals in the 1840s and 50s come from and are associated with warehouses and manufactories, and they are printing images for their catalogs, and they're printing images for their subscribers at the same time and using the same images. They're writing about the things that they're selling in their journals. When historians write about agricultural journalists, we tend to think of them as sort of gentleman farmers and authors and reformers, but they are often salesmen. And they're not ashamed of that, right? This is in Tucker's own advertising. In fact, his claims to expertise come in part from his position, from his exposure to the machines and the things that are available in his warehouse. Increasingly, the author, or sorry, the audiences of journals were expected not just to be readers, but also to be buyers. Noticing this helps us understand where science is happening in the early republic. New York in this period had one agricultural museum, which is kind of amazing. Most places had no agricultural museums, but it had dozens of warehouses. It didn't really have a public botanical garden, but it had a lot of commercial nurseries that sold plants and trees, but also aspired to the functions of the botanical garden. When we want to understand why improvement becomes so big so quickly in the 1840s, this new commercial system is really important. But it doesn't just amplify improvement, it determines who the experts are and changes the kinds of knowledge that improvers make. And I argue in the book that increasingly the knowledge of improvement is not just about landscapes, but it's also about goods. Participants in improvement are not just expected to read scientific writings and act on them. They're not just supposed to buy goods, though. They're also supposed to make knowledge. They have a culture of experiment and public trial and exhibition and publication that makes them, and I wish I could highlight these words, clearly the largest self-consciously scientific community in the United States. If we include global improving networks, particularly uh, British imperial global improving networks, improvement is probably the largest Uh, scientific network in the world in the 19th century. With a whole world to choose from, I focus on New York State, um, and I do that for a lot of reasons. So New York State is important um, in part because New York is an agricultural powerhouse. It has the greatest amount of assessed agricultural wealth in uh, most of the antebellum censuses. It produces the most fruit by twice as much as any other state. It has the most market gardens. It raises the most livestock. New York farmers use the most machinery. It's the place where a lot of things are being tried out, where there's a lot of capital and a lot of appetite also kind of coming out of New York City uh, for new things and new foods. I'm also interested in it, obviously, because it's a major center of improvement. Uh, So I said in 1860, there are 900 agricultural societies and clubs. A ninth of them are in New York State. New York State's agricultural society becomes a national model. Their journals dominate a lot of the conversation. So the New York Journal, The Cultivator, is called The Cultivator, all of the other, there are a bunch of other cultivators and they're all called the cultivator of the place, the Southern cultivator, yes. This is partly, New York's dominance is partly because New York is able to dominate improving markets in print and goods because of its position between Midwestern and coastal, coastal markets. It's also the place with the biggest science budgets in the nation because the state has these huge eerie canal profits and um, also because both parties finance their partisan newspapers by awarding them very large publishing contracts. And so they're always turning out massive scientific reports, very thick, which fund a lot of scientists. So they have um, nationally admired science programs, mostly funded by print corruption. So there's a lot of agricultural science happening in New York. And it's being performed by by farmers, by warehouse operators, by nurserymen, and by a very small number of career scientists. So when I say improvement is a set of scientific practices, what do I mean? Partly, improvers are using things that we recognize as science. So lots of different sciences, in fact, as we see here, being handed down uh, by the hand of God, uh, chemistry, geology, botany, and meteorology, and agriculture at the bottom is sort of a science on its own. We could add here also entomology, comparative anatomy, and also sciences uh, that are sort of central to improvement like pomology, which is the science of fruit or uh, the many different aspects of the study of inheritance. And that makes sense because farms are pretty complicated objects of knowledge. If we look at a table of contents for any of the journals, we get a sense of wild overwhelming variability. So in the cultivator for 1841 in the same Issue, we saw articles on making wine, the growth of trees, the sagacity of the dog, the agricultural art, bloody moraine, uh, that's a sheep disease, butter, uh, but then also plum tree blight, reasons for engaging the silk culture, Ayrshire cattle, wheat statistics, and crushed bone. It feels random, but it is not. So, one of the goals of this book is to uncover the ways of seeing the world that hold these different investigations together. So, we're going to talk about these. First, and this is where my title comes from, Improving Science is Futuristic. Okay, so what does that mean? We're not used to thinking of farming as futuristic. Actually, after a few decades, literally everything in farming gets labeled traditional in my experience. So let me explain it in this way. In a lot of sciences, the job of the science is, scientist is to describe the world as it is. So naturalists are going out into the world to find out what is there, to collect species and to bring them home. Geologists are mapping existing strata of rock. These are what we might call sciences of inventory. They're looking at what is here and the world with us and cataloging it. But agricultural science is about landscapes that are not there yet. Improvers are always talking about landscapes that don't exist. For example, looking at the granite, heavily forested slopes of the Adirondacks, improving scientist Ebenezer Emmons said that he could hear the cattle who would one day graze there. Where naturalists looked for divine creations in wild species, improvers planned a world that they would help to create. However, that didn't mean that this improving world was not to them natural. So now I'm gonna talk about the nature part of the nature of the future. Improvers imagined a God who worked through the economy, a God who had anticipated the arrival of white people in New York and who had prepared the landscape for them. Good wheat land in one place, good cheese country in another, a convenient crease for the Erie Canal. This is a big deal for them. Because it was a regional landscape, this is also a landscape that was intended for commerce. So this is a map uh, that was produced by state scientists in the 1850s that divided New York, hopefully, up into future functions of corn and wheat and fruit and dairy. To improve this, this is a map of something natural. The British improving chemist James F.W. Johnston wrote, All study of natural history and of physical geography shows the deity intended that one part of the world should minister to the wants of the other, and that they should mutually interchange commodities and productions. So this is a landscape that is built for trade, and that is where these different colored blotches come from. By implication, this was also a God who expected improvers to take Haudenosaunee land, right? If, as they're arguing, some land is naturally intended for wheat, then it's not natural for it to be in the hands of the Seneca. This is the same kind of rhetoric the British are using in their empire, right? Australia is really a place for Merino sheep, not Aboriginal peoples. Improving experiments and prizes and observations claim to find the signs that God had left about the shape of this future economy, which they describe in terms of adaptation. So landscapes are imagined as being adapted to particular goods. Breeds are adapted to particular landscapes that they're not on yet. And there's a sense that these adaptations are a part of creation. For example, I talk in the book about how different kinds of machinery, so the designs of agricultural machinery are often described in bodily terms as having kind of arms and teeth as imitating as this uh, raking reaper does, human movements even as they imitate bodies. And they think of bodies as being a form of machine and also machines as imitating bodies. There's a sort of blending of the natural and artificial here. Because in improving agriculture, improvers think of themselves as carrying out natural laws of development that extend into technology. Okay, so I don't think it's a shock to anyone to find out that white settlers thought of the landscape in terms of profit or that they felt divinely destined to transform the landscape. But we don't talk as much about what that means for how they understand the landscape works concretely or how knowledge about that landscape is to work. If profit is a feature of nature, in improvement, profit uh, is gonna shape how credibility works. We sometimes talk in the history of science about the rise of disinterested expertise, expertise that is separated from money. In improvement, often experts got their expertise from profit, from selling a successful machine, Or successful variety of fruit tree. And their position within a commercial network could increase their credibility. One of the big places that experiments actually got published were in pamphlets like this one. So this is a pamphlet for the Reaper that I just showed you in the last slide. Um, It is packed with pages and pages of experimental experimental accounts and testimonies, most of which are expected to explain to uh, potential patent buyers in London why they've heard that the machine is a total disaster based on a famous trial in Geneva, New York, and why actually that reputation is not justified based on lots of other kinds of testimony. In improving farming experiments, such as the ones that appear in this advertisement, but also the ones that appear in journals, profit is a formal part of proof. They often finish their experiments with an actual literal account showing that the experiment was profitable. The centrality of accounting extends very broadly into improving knowledge. For example, it's not unusual, in fact, extremely common for improvers to describe the landscape as being um, in debtor-creditor relationships with them. Uh, So this is one of my favorite images. Uh, This is an image from an accounting textbook, which is describing, it's showing you how to keep accounts, right? So they're showing debtor and creditor relationships. And here are the debtor-creditor relationships of the account keeper with Thomas Jones, a human being. And here are the debtor-creditor relationship uh, with uh, the manure pile, which is both uh, a a source of value and also it's taking in value. So it has a debtor-creditor relationship. A lot of the new nutritional science that comes out in this period is intended to talk about actually the debt and credit uh, relationships in eating systems to imagine the different features of the farm landscape as being in debt to each other. The sense of futurity that is central to improvement also shapes how improvers describe animals and plants. So when they see a pig such as this, they don't think, ah, an anomaly or monster, as a naturalist might. Instead, they look at it to see if maybe it should be bred from to reshape the future of pigs, because they're not interested in finding a typical example. They're interested in finding what the future is going to look like. Likewise, this picture of an apple looks like a natural history illustration, um, if you're familiar with those, but it's actually really different. So if they're looking at a particularly beautiful variety of apple like this red astrakhan, Improvers are not describing an existing population of trees. They're trying to create one by spreading the apple across a landscape, by intensifying its use. The print culture or images from print culture like this one are supposed to change the landscape that they describe. I should be pretty clear now that they do in fact change that landscape. Uh, A lot of the futures that, uh, that improvers are interested in come into being or come partially into being in ways that uh, make the landscape profoundly different. Fruit trees, for example, change hugely between 1820 and 1860. In 1820, almost all American fruit trees, there are a lot of American fruit trees, but they're mostly wild seedlings. They've been planted um, with the leavings of um, or already eaten apples. Uh, they're pretty chaotic. Uh, Apples are really various when you plant them from seeds. They're mostly not edible raw, and they're mostly being turned into cider or brandy. By the 1860s, almost all American apple trees are named varieties, like the astrakhan. In fact, everyone listening to this has probably eaten a bunch of named apples. We expect apples to have names. This is the moment when that landscape comes into being in the United States. These apple varieties have been propagated by grafting, so that you cut a piece off um, one tree and stick it uh, to a piece of another and it basically produces a clone of the original tree. They've been ordered from nursery nurseryman's catalogs after their reputations have been built in print so the real tree follows the print. By the 1860s or even by the 1850s apples uh, like the Astrakhan are becoming fashionable, they're being counterfeited, they have become commodities and stealing them becomes a crime which it wasn't previously. Because improvement is always about landscapes that don't exist, the boundaries of what is practical and what is possible are always pretty blurry. We can see this in a subculture of agricultural improvement, uh, which is writing and display about surprisingly large animals and plants. I call them agricultural giants. So these are things like really like eight inch around strawberries or eight foot around squashes or oxen that weigh twice as much as oxen usually weigh. Agricultural giants show up in newspapers and at fairs all through antebellum culture, um looking at them, improvers can see a lot of things that we can't see. They can see the cultivation skill that went into them, right, but they also see an extension of the realm of agricultural possibility. okay, so the pig is at least theoretically a picture of a real pig. The chicken is obviously not real right this is the chicken that goes on the cover of the book. This is from a humorous uh, book that's written after an enthusiasm for really tall Chinese chickens in the 1850s. It's obviously a joke of scale, right, like a fish story. So there's this terribly tall chicken for people who are audio and a little tiny man about the height of one of its knees offering it a piece of corn. The thing with improving knowledge though is it's never quite clear what is a fish story, what's a tall tale, and what's a surprising reality. The boundaries of credible reality are constantly being pushed. At no point do 30-foot chickens exist. But the corn yields and pig sizes that are seen as ludicrous jokes in the 1840s are normal now. And in fact, what is tall tale one decade can be normal the next. So this may be uh, seeming kind of unstable and chaotic, and that's actually something I'm trying to convey. We often, in the history of science in particular, talk about capitalism as a sort of rationalizing force. Capitalism pushes scientists to think about calculation and utility and profit. And science, in return, provides capitalism with a set of stable values, with some sort of certainty. An improvement that does not happen. You can see that in this amazing picture of bubbles. So this is from the same uh, comic uh, text as the chicken. Uh, And it's this picture of a Yankee theoretically Yankee man, uh, blowing bubbles from a pipe. And in the bubbles are different things that account as kind of uh, bubbles of the 19th century. So uh, we can see that in these bubbles, um, fancy chickens and cattle, the alderney, and dwarf pear trees are mixed in with second mortgages and railroad shares and paper money. And down here in the corner, I find this rather frustrating, female novelists. We don't normally think of farmers As participating in bubbles. Uh, I sometimes think that narratively, we've left farming as one of the last bastions where markets seem obvious and rational. And we sort of imagine that farmers are just solidly reading markets somehow or obeying their dictates. They're hard headed and conservative and stolid, or the other alternative is they're resisted to markets entirely, right? And they're just tradition bound and hide bound and conservative in that way. Part of the reason that this very common volatility has become invisible has to do with the ways that we talk about projected futures that succeed and projected futures that fail. Um, And I just very quickly wanna gesture at one successful future and one failed future. Very, very quickly, each of them is one chapter. This is the fastest they've ever been. Okay, so the successful future is on the left and, or sorry, it's on the right, and the failed future is on the left. Okay, so on the left, we have an artifact from a failed future. This is from the mulberry mania of the late 1830s. This is a moment when mulberry trees, which are used to feed silkworms usually, become hot speculative commodities across the country because they're expected to feed the silkworms of a new silk empire. New York, the idea is, is gonna be like China. And this is going to rescue investors from the Panic of 1837. In 1838, at the Panic's height, more than a million trees are sold in New York. The price goes higher and higher. And ultimately, the whole uh, thing is sort of destroyed by the Panic of 1839, because people are spending a great deal of um, uh, different kinds of of paper on uh, on mulberry trees. And when that paper loses its value, no one can meet their debts. So this is a wildly popular future that fails and like many of these, and there are a lot of different, uh, kind of analogous moments in improvement. It's usually described as a mania or a moment of madness or a fever or a sickness, right? On the right is an image from a successful future where the industrialist Zadok Pratt, like a lot of people in New York goes to enormous lengths through experiment and exhibition and publishing. To demonstrate that his disastrous former tanning town was actually not just a whole pile of cut-over uh, hemlock, but actually the natural place of butter, Pratt kind of succeeds in this, and his town becomes a butter-producing. Well, he, he owns his town, so when I say his town, the town that belongs to him becomes a butter-producing place. When we talk about these two futures, it's easy to say um, that silk is a crazy idea and butter is a rational and natural idea. It's easy to say, oh, New York is not silk land, it's butterland." And to cast these as environmental differences. And often when people talk about failed uh, environments, or sorry, failed agricultural uh, futures, they use these sort of naturalizing terms. Actually mulberry trees grow fine in New York. I used to have to weed the mulberry trees that are planted as a part of this fever out of my garden when I lived in Rochester for a year. The same people participate in the Mulri bubble as participate in the battle about butter. They use a lot of the same institutions and forms of credibility to do so, but because they fail, uh, this moment is seen as kind of a moment of irrationality that is not part of the regular, uh, the regular business of improvement, the regular business of agriculture. And so the successful futures are the only ones that are left if we prune away the failed futures, we sort of, and sort of imply that they were not possible, we participate in the same kind of naturalization that improvers were establishing. Okay, so this is one of the big gestures of the book. Now I just wanna take a moment to step back. The recent history of American capitalism has helped us to look to the South and slavery to find a lot of the origins of industrialization and labor control and capitalism and the violent foundation of America's wealth. And that's obviously an important turn. I think in making that turn, we've maybe let the rural north seem like a bit of an anti-capitalist foil, a place where agriculture stays traditional, where white families are presumed to be maintaining basically static forms of knowledge. That consistency over time is one of the sources of the extreme virtue we often ascribe to family farms or to people in the heartland. And we give, you know, this, this huge symbolic value of family farms has dramatically skewed agriculture in some amazing ways, uh, such that, for example, 98% of American farms are classed as family farms, regardless of their size. This sort of sense um, of the past as being static and the 19th century past as being static and traditional in the north is maybe supported by the local food movement, which is being depicted here. A lot of apples in this talk. And I think the local food movement has a bit of a nostalgia problem fantasizing about this period. So, for example, all the new fruit varieties that are being pushed through consumer markets as total modern refined novelties in the 1840s are now heirlooms, right? And an heirloom is a sort of sentimental non-commodity that somehow mysteriously also costs more. And that comes from a kind of uh, timeless traditional past. So part of what I want to do with this book is to jostle that image. To show northern landscapes as profoundly shaped by markets, I want to make clear that those markets are not stabilizing or rationalizing the landscape. they are like urban markets volatile and contested and deeply shaped by desire and taste and stories. I want to denaturalize this um, the landscape of the nineteenth century north and I want to put farming back into time i 'm going to finish with um A very out of my period picture. For people uh, who are audio only, this is um, a puzzle. This one's from the 1950s. I had one growing up in the 1980s. Not an intellectual puzzle, but a puzzle where you fit the pieces together. Uh, And this is one of those puzzles where all the states have their own piece of food. Uh, I'm from Wisconsin, so I look straight at the cheese and apparently fish that we were associated with in the 1950s. This feels like a natural map. Somehow, even though it's a fundamentally artificial ecosystem. All of the species here were moved and concentrated. It describes reality, but a created reality. Cows seem like they belong in the dairy places, but this is actually the secular version of the idea that there's a divine place for butter. This is a landscape that is in a lot of ways created by 19th century improvers. The animals and plants that are in this puzzle are moved there by catalogs, Their regional reputations are created by fairs and journals and experimental farms like Zadok Paths. They're not natural and their fixity is an illusion. So for me, this is one of the reasons that I want to write. And I think it's worth thinking about this and noticing this this kind of constructedness, because we're heading into a period of enormous landscape restructuring in farming, right? The climate is changing uh, and agriculture is about to change quite a bit. If we believe that the landscape itself dictates the kinds of system built on it, or we believe stories where people tell us that, if we uncritically accept stories of the future that we're given, or we think that uh, agricultural uh, agricultural futures trace one possible future arc and one only, it's going to be difficult to make decisions about social systems and food systems that we build on the land. So I'm going to leave it at that. I'm really looking forward to your questions. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you so much, that was wonderful. Um, and uh, I'm gonna invite all of you to participate through the Q&A feed, but in the meantime, you're gonna be stuck with one of my silly questions. So when I think about Antebellum, New York, I think about a lot of religious experimentation. I think about utopian communities. No yes. And I wonder if there, is there any kind of relationship between this aspirational aggregate, this aspirational agricultural improvement and the sort of moral and spiritual improvement movements that were to emerge in the second great awakening.
1: So, yes. Um, and, it, and I think one of the things that, um, it's not that I can draw like direct lines where I can be like the Oneida community to agricultural improvement or, or, um, uh, Millerites or something like that. But I think, um, That really what I would like to do is put agricultural improvement in the same kind of future dreaming category as we put the people from the Second Great Awakening. And I think also, so a lot of them are post-millennial evangelicals, as you would think, right? And so this sort of sense that they have that they're progressing towards a future of prosperity uh, that will precede the second coming. This is coming from their evangelical Christianity, and I think it's really interesting that we tend to think of those ones as the rational ones, and then the Millerites waiting on their hills for the second coming. You know, that's not rational. And I would like to be the. I would like to sort of see them as being on the same page, and maybe take away a little bit of the um, the kind of separate category that we've given
0: postmillennialists hmm. in this narrative. That's yeah. We have a couple of questions from Emile Connolly. Um, and I'm going to take them sort of separately because I think that they're both really rich in their own way. First of all, she says, fascinating talk. Two questions. Oh, thank you. First being, can you comment on how these agricultural improvers' visions for the future intersected with fantasies of indigenous extinction, which were right in this period and place?
1: So it is, <laughs> it is, it, it is what you would think. So, it's It's sort of fascinating because uh New York improvers have to wrestle with the continued presence they're they're literally often trying to take land from the Seneca while they are kind of uh kind of arguing their own nativity in New York, so they're very adept at this sort of firsting and lasting that we're familiar with um uh from New England and there are also a lot of really fascinating moments where they're taking indigenous crops and indigenous techniques and either absorbing them into improvement and rendering indigenous people sort of invisible by turning their um their techniques into discoveries into white discoveries which they do very uh, kind of openly um or kind of um comparing themselves constantly to saying, well okay so indigenous people invented corn and we recognize that that's true. But their corn was much smaller than our corn. And here, let us compare this corn with that corn. And it's, it's kind of hilarious because actually um, it turns out that probably their corn was a little bit smaller than Haudenosaunee corn. Um, so thank you, Jane and Pleasant for helping with this. But um, so they're, they're always simultaneously talking about indigenous people and trying to avoid talking about them in a way that is pretty familiar from most antebellum people talking about land, if that makes sense.
0: Um, not only did it make sense, but you actually sort of anticipated the second question there. <laughs> this is really brilliant. Uh, There's a follow-up question saying, we know from Jane Mount Pleasant's work that settler yields were but a fraction of Native women's uh, no-till methods. Did improvers ever notice or acknowledge this?
1: No, yeah. they did not. Well, so no, I should I should step back and say a lot of improvers are using indigenous met like they're using hilled corn and they're using intercropping and this sense that those things maybe work is something that other improvers try to talk them out of if that makes sense and they're and so occasionally they will acknowledge like the attractiveness of savage practices um because also uh hilling corn and growing corns in, in sort of uh in with Haudenosaunee techniques doesn't let you use machinery and mm. doesn't let you use tillage and tillage is increasingly important as mechanization is increasingly important so you see it in a kind of backhanded way that they're having to fight against these really quite effective and very low you know not very low labor but labor-efficient techniques mm. um are clearly pretty common. Yeah.
0: Joshua Greenberg uh, commends you on an excellent talk. And, oh, thanks, uh,
1: Joshua Greenberg.
0: <laughs> thanks, Josh, I should say. Josh is fine, I'm <laughs> sure. Um, he writes, um, I think I just heard you use the term future dreaming. Oh. I'm wondering about how farming boosterism for a new or not yet built community might differ from one trying to repurpose its land and economy.
1: Mm. That's a good question. So I guess two things. One is that improvers are almost always moving into, they're not doing the clearing. Uh, So the clearing, so they're not moving into territory that no white people have farmed before. Usually relatively poor farmers have gone into a landscape already and they've cut down the extremely large trees and they've had a few crops already. Um and uh and then they sell the farm for a little bit more, and that's called farm making, and it's kind of it's a kind of business. And the people who do farm making don't really usually have the kind of capital that you need to really engage in improvement. Um and usually they have soils that are so overwhelmingly rich that they actually can't really handle them because there's just piles and piles of leaf litter, and then a lot of that immediately washes away. So improvers are often even when they're not moving into hemlock cutover, they're usually moving into some kind of cutover and they're usually moving into some kind of landscape that is changing pretty rapidly. So there is a little bit less difference than you might think, if that makes sense. Um, Yes, okay, so I'll leave it there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, please forgive me if I mispronounce this last name. I've read it many times in print, but of course I'm seeing it for the first time here. Uh, Keith Ploymers? Am I right? Well, no. um, writes, Hi, Emily Gray talk. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about futurism and tradition. 17th century improvers often sought to brand their innovations as, quote, an old thrift newly revived, mm. looking backward to an, to an imagined past rather than branding it as forward looking. How did your improvers, your antebellum improvers seek to balance the rhetorics of future, of futurity and tradition?
1: So it's funny. um, And this is something that uh, Keith and I, I think we we should talk about more. But I I think that um, to think about how improvers think about the future, really, you need to think about Rome. Because a lot of the ways actually still, we might even say that people talk about agricultural modernity actually comes from classical texts, like these kind of really exist, like Roman imperial villas and Roman imperial imperial plantings and kind of classical texts in general are really um, generative for improvers. Improvers, they read, uh, some of them are reading Virgil and Ovid and some of them are talking to people who've read Virgil and Ovid, right? Who actually write about agricultural development. So when New Yorkers think about their future in general, they're often thinking about classical landscapes. They actually have towns called like Rome and Troy, you know, and Ithaca um and so they are in some ways moving into an ex a previously charted future and they're worried about that um and so rome is one part of that future great britain is another part of that future and sort of their sense always is or their argument sometimes the tradition is that they're saying okay well these things are tested elsewhere and we're going to try them here but it's clear that they don't really work here because new york is really not all that much like britain or italy um and so or egypt or any other places that the romans are getting their grain so um so there's always this kind of question of adaptation of other places paths of modernity to the new york reality um and then the new possibilities of trains and things like this um kind of change the whole geography so there's sort of a back and forth but i think uh someday i want to run a conference called modernity is based on Rome and, um, and Keith, you and I should go.
0: (laughs) And I just noticed a question that was submitted to the chat feed, um, from Aaron Hall, who, uh, thanks you for this book and the underlying research question is, what are the timescales that animate the goals and expectations?
1: Mm, Decades, but Mm. not many. Um, I think well, so when we're thinking about like how long is it, is it going to take, I think that people are, are not sure, improvers are not sure how much time it's going to take to get things done because things are getting done faster than they think all the time. Like New York is a place where agriculture is changing pretty rapidly. When the Erie Canal goes through, improvers and also everyone right, read a lot of travel narratives that say things like the cities are springing up like mushrooms, right? So there's a sense that time scales have kind of collapsed but there's also an expectation that it takes if you if you if you have a, a, a farm you need to get it into good heart it's going to take kind of a decade to make that happen if you have a town and you want to get it going it's going to take maybe 20 years so these are not really long timescales in agriculture but it's not a year um, except um, uh, I think the craze time, scale, time scales timescales or the the kind of uh, the the uh the mulberry timescale is a lot faster and we can talk about kind of why that is but mm. I'm, I'm trying not to launch into a mulberry story
0: actually <laughs> well I I would invite you to launch into a mulberry um, story or to maybe nibble on one other question that came up for me when you were um, st- sort of studiously using the term improvers mm. in this talk. And you mentioned early on farmers as like, mm-hmm. a, like a subsection of improvers. Does that then suppose that not all farmers are improvers? I mean, are there particular qualities that make a, a farmer an improver? So not
1: all farmers are improvers and not all improvers are farmers. So by but definitely not all farmers are improvers. I mean, depending on how you, there are 320,000 farmers in New York mm. by the end of my period. And there are 15,000 active improving society members, right? So that's, you know, there are maybe, there are tens of thousands of readers, maybe um, a majority of people are readers, but that's not quite the same thing. But then with an improvement, there are people who are farmers and there are people who are politicians. And then there are people who are in this kind of commercial network. They're also sort of in the, and then there are scientists right so that's kind of confusing but then also um (laughs) i have a chapter of the book called no ordinary farmers um one of the things that i want to bring out in the book is that the category farmer is itself pretty contested in Mm. the 19th century and the idea of being a real farmer or not a real farmer is something that people compete for so rural new york is pretty various actually right so if you have On the one hand, you have these very, very wealthy landlords and then once they fall very, very wealthy, often bankers and kind of people with rural estates. And then you have middling farmers and then you have tenants and then you have agricultural laborers. Then you have people within the household, like who counts as a farmer within a farming household. If you look at the census, it's pretty variable. Sometimes it's the father. Sometimes it's the father and three sons. And you're like, why? You know. there is a status to being a farmer, there's a status to being a real farmer and um, and people are accusing each other of being not real farmers also in this period of time. Um, in part because farmer is such a valuable political identity that people fake it mm. quite frequently and politicians fake it all the time. Um, and then their claims to be farmers are frequently challenged. So I wanna back away a little bit from saying that everybody in improvement is a farmer or not a farmer. But then I also want to talk about like, what do we mean when we say farmer? And why is it such a, for politicians, it's a valuably flexible identity, right? Cause it could be so many different classes. I try not to assume that I know which ones are real.
0: Well, um, I, I'd like to be respectful of folks' time, though I could very much continue this conversation and return to some of those wonderful slides that you had for for much, much longer. Um, until then, I encourage everyone to look up that book and to take advantage of that wonderful uh, discount code that your publisher has made available. Um, and thank you so much, Emily. This has been a wonderful fireside chat.
1: Thank you so much. This has been great. I, it's really fun. Thank you.
0: And for those of you who are looking for something to do next Thursday, we're continuing this, uh, this series for one more week before we break for the New Year's. Uh, Peter Mabley is going to be talking about cuisine and national identity in the early republic. I hope you'll return to us. So with that, thank you again, Emily. And thank you for all of you for joining us on the first night of Hanukkah.